This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week we have on Columbia historian Matt Connolly to talk about his new book called The Declassification Engine. It's all about secrecy in America and what it is we know and don't know. Okay, everybody, today we are really happy to welcome Matthew Connolly, who's a professor of international and global history at Columbia. Um, He is currently the co-director of the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, and he's the principal investigator of History Lab, um, which is a National Science Foundation-funded project to apply data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating its release. Um, So, Matt, every few years... You know, he he comes on and he, you know, and he, he publishes a really important book that everybody should read big books that on a range of topics uh, that are all must reads that will change your mind uh, on the topic of, at hand. And so I'm just going to mention a couple of them. One, um, one of my favorites, although I like them all, uh, is a diplomatic revolution, Algeria's fight for independence and the origins of the post Cold War era. It's literally a book that got me interested in the topic in the first place. Um, it's won multiple awards. His next book, um, Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population, um, is also an excellent, um, if sometimes dark, read. Uh, and then also today he's here for his latest book, which is absolutely amazing, called The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. So Matt, I know you've been on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, and you've been on The Problem with Jon Stewart, and I'm glad you got, you know, a chance to get on those, like, JV broadcast media, because uh, now you're on No Politics at the Dinner Table with the, with the big leagues, all right? So, so welcome. I know it's all been leading up to this moment. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm glad I could do this for you. All right, okay, so... Uh, I thought I was going to do like a grad school type read of your book. You know, it was a big book. It's the middle of the semester. Um, I had to get through it. And I thought, you know, glean the key arguments, focus on the introduction, conclusion, some key chapters, check out your bibliography. But the writing in this book is so damn good that I just had to luxuriate in the narrative and also allow myself to kind of feel the shock (laughs) set in at various moments. I just, you know, had to pause. Um, so I can't, I really can't recommend this enough for people to read. It's, it's a book that you can read in any context. Um, and so I just can't, you know, in that way, I can't say enough good things about it. I've learned a ton from this book. Um, and there's a lot of ways in, I thought for our listeners, um, the best thing is to probably start with some basics is like how, you know, the, the sort of the standard question that people get asked is that how did you get interested in this subject? Um, and the development of what you call not the deep state, but the dark state? Um, is it from your past research, you know, being impeded by classified documentation? Uh, I mean, you start the book with a vignette about, you know, lawyers sitting across the table from you telling you you're going to be indicted if you even apart, you know, start on this research. So how did you get into this thing? Yeah, well, that got my attention. You know, <laughs> I hadn't, you know, I hadn't quite experienced uh, anything quite like that before. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when I was working on these earlier books, uh, going back a long ways, you know, all the way back to the 1990s, uh, a lot of what I was looking for uh, were declassified documents. Because, you know, if you want to write about whether it's the history of the Cold War and decolonization, you know, or whether it's, uh, you know, American international efforts to try to get poor people to stop having children, you know, a lot of times what you really want to know is the stuff that at least at one point was, was classified, was secret. Uh, so, you know, over the years, you know, I found ways to work around it. The main way, as you well know, because you do this too, Amit, is, you know, to when you can't find what you're looking for in one archive, you just hit the road, right? And, and you start looking elsewhere. Um, so, you know, the population book, I eventually worked, in, I think, in like 50 different archives in like several different countries. Uh, so you can do that. You know, it's a kind of triangulation um, where eventually you hope you're going to get more of the full picture, right? By looking at it from different angles. But uh, this last book, um, it wasn't supposed to be about secrecy. I was actually planning to write a book about the history of the end of the world. I was trying to write about, you know, how it is the U.S. government prepared for nuclear war, um, pandemics, climate change, um, you know, religious terrorist movements and so on. And what I found was that, especially on topics like these, 
uh, especially nuclear war, um, it's really hard, you know, to do research. So I found, you know, just to take one example, some of the most fascinating material was about how the Pentagon planned for future wars using scenario exercises. You know, they would get uh, people to sit around a table, you know, pretend, you know, playing roles like Secretary of State, President, National Security Advisor. Um, only a handful of these have been declassified. So we know there are hundreds of these exercises. They continue right up to the present day. But the handful that were declassified were just bonkers. You know, like the Pentagon was, you know, running scenarios where there was going to be race war. Um, you know, they uh, imagine like how white people all across Africa would be slaughtered. Um, you know, how the Cubans would invade, you know, set up a black power government. Um, there would be huge cr chanting crowds while they executed capitalists at the Orange Bowl. You know, <laughs> you know I wanted to know more. You know? <laughs> I wanted to know, like, well, what else were the Joy Chiefs of Staff spending their time on? You know, this is like 1963 we're talking about. Um, but it, I just kept running into this brick wall. Um, I filed multiple um, Freedom of Information Act requests at multiple presidential libraries. To this day, I've received nothing. You know? and, and then I started trying to look at it big picture, you know, to see whether there were larger trends. And what I realized was that when I was starting out, um, you know, back in the 90s, that was the golden age of declassification. You know, at one point, the U.S. government was releasing over 200 million pages a year of formerly secret documents. That whole process has almost collapsed, you know, it, and it's never recovered. And so, you know, we're now declassifying um, a fraction of what we were then. Like, it's never been more than 50 million pages, even though we also know, also from government statistics, that they've been creating more secrets all the time. You know, at one point when they were still able to issue these kinds of statistics, they estimated that some official was classifying information three times every second. Um, so, you know, that's what made me realize, like, there is a bigger problem here. It's not just the problem of trying to write this book about the end of the world. And so I, I ended up, you know, setting out on this different project where I collaborate with data scientists and we try to aggregate all the records that have been released. And then we use data science tools to figure out what's missing. Um, so that's that's been what I've been working on this whole time. And now I'm hoping to get back to the end of the world. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy times. Yeah, well, just in time, you know. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> if anything, your books are topical, Matt. They're topical. Um, well, that's right. why you should be so afraid of me finishing the next book. <laughs> Yeah. It takes me at least 14 years, right? Get everything in order yeah. before I actually put that book to bed. Um, so there's so many revelations in this book. And obviously, you know, can't get to them all. Everybody, you know, buy the book and read it. Um, you know, speaking of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I and so, some stuff that I was just like gobsmacked by, you know, the fact that they decided, oh, we're going to go back to, you know, the start of us in 47 and delete all our records. Uh, and then we're not even going to keep notes afterwards um, since 1978 or something like that, right? So, so it was. I could. How is that even legal? You know, like, like I, I just don't understand how they can get away with this stuff. And and this is one of the things that I found so instructive about the book and the argument that emerges is that this is really about power, control the emergent status hierarchy uh, and kind of pissing contests between uh, different governmental departments um, uh, and money <laughs> in, 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 in various ways. And yeah. it seems like almost like the last thing that they're really thinking about is national security sometimes. <laughs> they're thinking about their reputations, how much money they can get. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I don't get how they can get away with it. Um, one thing that I thought listeners would really get a lot out of um, is hearing about your for actually the first two chapters, the Pearl Harbor and the Manhattan Project. Because I think this is like a history that most people do not know. And I bring bring up Pearl Harbor in particular because I recently I attended a talk last week, um, and it was retired practitioner in military intelligence who you know had worked in military intelligence for decades, and he was questioned about the problem of sec uh, secrecy. Um, even within the security state. And the question was framed around 9-11, like, you know, the FBI was saying this and so-and-so was saying this. There was, you know, bin Laden's imminent attack for the NSC and all that. 
Um, and he described the 9-11 attacks as an example of the U.S. knowing an attack was imminent, but not knowing where. And he contrasted that with Pearl Harbor as a complete surprise, you know, like a shot out of the blue sky. And I can't believe this happened. However, what you present about Pearl Harbor and the secrecy that emerged around it tells a pretty different story. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, just to touch on the first thing you mentioned, uh, destruction of records, I call that the ultimate secret, you mm -hmm. know, because once you've erased all the evidence, it's hard for anyone ever to know, you know, like our civilization could collapse and a thousand years from now, aliens will come visit. Even they won't know <laughs> what the Joy Chiefs of Staff were trying to do. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think your question, I should answer that question. Like, how is that even legal? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. <laughs> you know, the, the Federal Records Act, you know, going on, it was passed in 1950. Um, you know, departments and agencies are not supposed to destroy records unless they first get the permission of the archivists of the United States. Um, you know, but just imagine, right? You've got a fight in one corner. You have the Pentagon, right? <laughs> and it has a budget of over $800 billion, you know. And you know, millions of men under and women under arms, and and then in the other corner you have the National Archives, right? And they have a budget of less than four hundred million dollars. It's been flatlined for about twenty years now. Just imagine what happens, right? When they go to war, um, typically the National Archives does not win that kind of battle. Right. So, um, so this has been true all along. You know, the the National Archives, um, it's, it's you know like the neglected or abused stepchild in the family of our federal government. Um, and this is even more the case when it goes head to head uh, with a president, right? Uh, even with an ex-president, like with Donald Trump, we could see how over and over again, they plead and say, please, could you return these records? They belong to the American people. We're supposed to safeguard them, you know, so that one day, you know, uh, citizens, journalists, historians can find out what was happening behind the, the cloak of secrecy. And, and we all know how that turned out. So, um, so this is a long story, you know, in terms of like records destruction, I give a lot of examples of it, but, um, you know, it all begins, my book anyway, begins with Pearl Harbor. I call that the original secret. Um, and, you know, as somebody who went to 12 years of Catholic school, I was, you know, in that way alluding to, you know, this idea of original sin. Um, because, you know, if you look at the story of Pearl Harbor, like so much of what follows, you know, starts with this idea you know, that uh, came out of a clear blue sky. Um, you know, FDR told Congress and the American people it was a day that would live in infamy um, because it was deliberate and unprovoked. Um, and at that time when the Japanese, you know, were flying off of carriers to destroy America's Pacific fleet, you know, FDR said that the U.S. was still negotiating in good faith, you know, with every expectation, you know, that they were going to try to keep the peace. So like you said, Ahmed, that just wasn't true. You know, they, they knew an attack was coming um, and they knew it for weeks. Um, and more than that, they actually wanted Japan to attack uh, because they thought that was the only way they could bring the U.S. into the war uh, in Europe. And Roosevelt, with his advisors for months, had been trying to create incidents in the Atlantic during the Battle of the Atlantic to, um, to draw out Germany. Uh, but Hitler didn't want to be provoked. He didn't want to, at least not if he didn't have to, um, have to go to war against the United States. Uh, and so, you know, provoking an attack from Japan was a way of, of getting into that war through what they call the back door. So that was the back door theory about how this war came about. Now, there are all varieties of that theory. I don't go in for the idea, you know, that Roosevelt and his advisors knew they were going to attack Pearl Harbor specifically. Um, I, I don't think you have to, you know, believe, you know, every variety of conspiracy theory about Pearl Harbor to get at what was really important here. The important thing is, um, you know, Roosevelt and his advisors felt that the American people, you know, wouldn't support their plans if they knew what they were. And so they had to pretend, you know, that this was a surprise attack. Um, and the real surprise was that American commanders on the scene, you know, weren't given the same intelligence. They didn't know it was coming. Um, and, you know, this, too, is like one of the original sins of this whole system for keeping secrets. It's the fact that in many cases, the people who most need that information are denied that information. Um, now, typically in the intelligence community, uh, at least for a few decades anyway, after the, the, the fact, you know, this was well known. Right. And, and people knew that the failure to share intelligence was something that left the U.S. vulnerable. And it was certainly the case with 9-11. 
And it's just sad, isn't it, that we have to keep learning these lessons over and over again because they get forgotten. And, you know, how better to make these lessons go away than to destroy the records or keep them secret indefinitely, right? So, so this, you know, just to finish up the point, this is like why it's so important. It's a matter of national security that we be able to preserve that information and learn from it because, you know, there's nothing more expensive uh, and more dangerous really than, you know, continuing to make these kinds of mistakes at the cost of, you know, new wars and unnecessary wars that cost trillions of dollars and, and millions of lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know that history at all. And I was just shocked that I forget who it was, but the, the document that was declassified noted some American diplomats cheering when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked because they finally had the, the provocation that they needed to get the American people on the side to fight, right? It was just like, oh my God. I mean, that's just yeah. insane. That was Winston Churchill. Um, and he related that story at right. a white dinner. Right. Yeah. And so the document you mentioned, Ahmed, it was from 1953, I believe. It was during a state visit. And Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., the American ambassador to the UN, I think was spellbound, you know, as Churchill late into the night, you know, was regaling yeah. everyone around him with these stories from from the war. And I think from all we know about Churchill, he was probably into his cups. You know? Yeah, yeah. He, he loved drinking. And, Whiskey and, number eight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so so he was very free, right, with his memories from the time. And like you said, you know, it so happened the evening they got the news from Pearl Harbor. He was entertaining two high high level American um, ambassadors. And, uh, and yes, they, they danced, right? Churchill assumed that they were going to be shocked and appalled, and instead they were delighted. Um, even more so after talking with Roosevelt, they got on the phone with, and talked to the president about it. And, and so, you know, that was something that was redacted for decades. You know, it was called top secret. The American Secretary of State at the time, you know, didn't want anyone else to see the document. And indeed, you know, even in the early 1990s, it was still considered top secret. Technically, that means information that would cause grave damage to national security. So just think of it. This is a 50-year-old war story, um, you know, by the early 90s. And even then, it was thought as something that would be in, in a danger to American national security. Now, you have to kind of infer, you know, what it was that they, they thought would be so dangerous. But at that very moment that they were reviewing this document and deciding they were going to redact that whole story, the U.S. was preparing to go to war against Iraq together with Britain. Um, and it was at that moment that many people were asking questions like, well, you know, was that attack, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, was that really a surprise? Could it be that America's ambassador, April Glaspie, that she gave, if not a green light, then maybe a yellow light? Could it be that, you know, the U.S. actually welcomed the opportunity to deploy forces and set up permanent military bases in the Persian Gulf? And so, you know, these are, I think, legitimate questions. And I think in, in 1991, the Bush administration didn't want people asking those kind of questions. So this is a kind of history, you know, that, yes, you can really learn from. And it turned out to be super relevant in that moment, all the more reason that, that they needed it to go away. Um, so that's, again, you know, the, why I think, you know, the history that we're talking about, it could be really relevant. And sometimes you don't even know how relevant it can be. Yeah, um, it's the parallels are, are crazy. And, and, and this is always the thing with historical documentation is that for whatever reason it was deemed secret or, or needed to be classified or withheld, um, there can be various moments in the ensuing years that, you know, some echo of that situation is coming up and, and it would be useful here. I mean, in terms of like, the legal reason here. I mean, it, it just seems so obvious that this is like reputational damage, right? This is, this is not so much about national security, like actual security, yeah. but it's about how, how we should remember this war. Right. Um, the other thing. So, so if that's Pearl Harbor, the other major thing that I think will be a big revelation amongst many in this book is the primary role of the Manhattan project. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, I'm just going to quote very briefly from that chapter. Uh, you write that after the dark state was first conceived at Pearl Harbor, it was the Manhattan Project that gave it a distinct form, a self-replicating system for controlling what is now called, quote, sensitive compartmentalized information. So could you talk a little bit about the nature of like how secrecy is organized in the government and, you know, like this guy, Leslie Groves and his role in creating like these little snowballs that have now become sort of 
an avalanche of, of classified documents. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's been getting a lot of coverage, you know, since the Mar-a-Lago um, revelations, right? When, when Trump was taking documents with him to his right. private residence and wouldn't give them up, um, you know, People now, I think a lot of people have heard about how, you know, we have top secret and then we have secret, we have confidential. Um, and then sometimes people will say, well, something was like above top secret, you know, it was like sensitive, um, you know, compartmentalized information. You know, that's a little bit of a misconception because what we're really talking about is that, yes, there are these levels of secrecy and top secret is supposed to be the top of the top secrets. Um, but there are also these things called compartments, right? Uh, or sometimes they're called special access programs. Um, and what that's referring to is how, you know, you have these levels of secrecy, but then you have these vertical silos, right? So you may have like a top secret security clearance. 1.3 million people have top secret security <laughs> clearances, but they're not allowed to know everything that's top secret. They're only allowed to know the things that they're supposed to have a need to know. Right. So you have to be what they say is you're read in, you know, to one of these special access programs or, or certain kinds of sensitive compartmentalized information. Um, and so the original special access program was the Manhattan Project. Um, so, you know, around the same time, so, too, was the uh, the fact of the uh, Normandy landings. Right. The, the time and place of those landings and also, you know, everything to do you know, with with that program. So these you know, compartments can be quite large, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people eventually were working on, on different aspects of the, the Manhattan Project. Um, but people outside aren't supposed to know anything about them. Um, now, you know, the way it really works, of course, can be very different. And that's why I often say that beyond the rules that we often get really hung up on, when you get these people on interview programs talking about their rules, you would think like, oh, wow, they're so careful, right? They have you know, background checks and they, they have to be read in. There's all this training. But what actually happens can be really different. So to take an example, um, in the case of the Manhattan Project, General Groves decided that everything to do with the Manhattan Project had to be top secret. Right. That's often the case because, you know, bureaucratic entrepreneurs, they realize that secrecy is a form of power. Right. And who wouldn't want the most secret, you know, power of all? Uh, and so it's regularly the case that officials will classify things at the highest level possible. In fact, it's often the default. So if you read the executive orders by which presidents, you know, are supposed to decide how the rest of the government is classifying information and compartmentalizing it, it will say that we should, you know, minimize the amount of information classified at the highest level. We should have as few special access programs as possible. But in fact, that's not really what happens. It usually is the opposite, right? They're trying to classify things at the highest level possible, even when these things are completely innocuous. And just recently, last summer, um, the person who's supposed to oversee all of this, the director of the Information Security Oversight Office, he tried to carry out a census. He tried to get all the different departments and agencies to account for how many different special access programs they have. He could not find out. He couldn't get this information. <laughs> so the government itself can't even tell you how many special access programs there are. That so I think that's to tell you, you know, how as much as we talk about these rules and how organized it is, actually the system is just out of control. It's really out of control. And that's why, like, or one reason why you have these so-called top secrets that supposedly compartmented showing up in Joe Biden's garage, you know, showing up <laughs> in Mar-a-Lago, showing up in, in Mike Pence's place, yeah. right? And who who knows where else? Because in mother's bedroom. And maybe your bedroom too. Right? It's, just, <laughs> it's just so out of control, you know, that they can't even keep a straight face any longer when they're trying to tell the rest of us how careful they are. Yeah. Um, it's, it's mind boggling. And, and on the, so to give the benefit of the doubt, um, to these people, you've, you've set up like the asymmetry between the people producing the documentation and the sort of threadbare funding of the people who are supposed to archive it, take a look at it, you know, yeah. scrutinize it, decide whether that, you know, allocation of confidential or secret is right and so on. Um, I, I'm forgetting the stat, but when in, in in the book, when you talk about the birth of the NSA itself, um, and when they're like deciding, okay, we're going to put it in Fort Meade and all, um, 
and they're trucking out 140 tons of documents every month and that's only in like the 50s um and then like getting rid of 40 tons also <laughs> but, but but so that, and that's just that's just the NSA right like so on the one hand we've got this kind of avalanche of paper and records and so and this goes to like my last question I'm going to pass it over to Tony in a sec but the major thing for me is that maybe I'm really old fashioned. This is, this is what actually one of the scary things in the book was the conclusion when you were talking about how history as we know it and doing it or changing because I'm not trained in the, in the way that you're sort of describing. But my sort of very traditional view of history is that the historian goes into the archive and sees for themselves with their own eyes, you know, and then makes a judgment, right? Based, based on their knowledge. Um, and here, I mean, you're making a very powerful argument is that we, because of the volume of the documents, we've got to offload that to um, AI effectively, right? That, that artificial intelligence is going to have to sort of step in and do some of the heavy lifting because it's impossible for a human being, a team of human beings, maybe even thousands of human beings to get through all of this. So my question for you um, is that like, how much do you trust these algorithms? You know, like algorithms kill people, right? Like they we, we send them in drones and stuff like that. And, you know, like, so they, they can do all sorts of things. Um, how, how, you know, how, for me, it's like, I'm not seeing it. I'm just trusting that the computer's doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you are right to be skeptical. Um, but I would also, you know, encourage you to be skeptical the next time you use like full text searching in a scholarly database, right? Like, you know, we all use things like Google Scholar, we use Google Books. Um, you know, there are all these different databases. If you're lucky enough to be affiliated with a library that can afford to subscribe, you know, to things like ProQuest Historical Newspapers, um, you know, most of us have access to JSTOR, but not everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Like independent scholars and so on. But if you're lucky enough, right, you have access to all these things that are increasingly seen as essential, you know, essential tools for doing historical research. And you plug in your words, right, hoping you're going to find something. You are using algorithms, Right. Um, and, and even, you know, to get to that point, uh, all those materials had to be digitized and they had to extract the text from them. And it's whatever they managed to extract is what you're actually searching. So there's some great research about this. Not enough, I don't think, but there's some anyway to show that, you know, once uh, materials get digitized, historians are far more likely to cite them. They like, for example, there's this great study looking at uh, Canadian newspapers. And what they found was, you know, they, they plotted out how many times scholars cited like this or that Canadian newspaper. As soon as one of those newspapers got digitized, that's what everybody was citing. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff that you still had to like schlep over to the library and like look it up in an index, right? And put in the microfilm and like roll over to that, that particular microfiche and try to make mm -hmm. it out. Like, you know, nobody was citing that stuff anymore. Okay. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so it makes sense. We're doing digital history, whether we realize it or not, right? And what a lot of historians, and not just historians, this is true, like, among, you know, everyday citizens, anybody, you know, who's trying to do text searching and find stuff. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that when they extract text from these pictures of pages, a lot of it is garbled, right? And so, you know, there have been times, for example, people have said, you know, I, I looked for the word abortion in 19th century newspapers, I didn't find it. I didn't think anybody was getting abortions back then. Maybe nobody <laughs> even wanted one. So like we know that's ridiculous, right? Because hey, maybe they weren't using the word abortion, but it's also ridiculous because you can't expect that you're actually searching all the words in these pictures of old newspapers, right? Because the, the technology isn't perfect and it's not gonna give you 100% fidelity in every word that's extracted. So, you know, time and again, like I've seen very well-credentialed scholars publishing in, in things like the American Historical Review, they'll say, I did a keyword search and here's the tally I came up with. I, I found 22 of these and five of those or whatever, as if, as if like they're actually like searching through the whole corpus of what it is that they're pretending to search through. No, you're not. <laughs> Your keyword searching is kind of lame and it's not really telling you what you, what you think it does, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of bad history is happening right now 
by people using digital tools and not really understanding how they work. Okay, so you are absolutely right to be skeptical, you know, what algorithms are doing and what they're sometimes not doing. Now, what I would argue is that, you know, we have to use algorithms. You know, like you said, the volume is just overwhelming otherwise. And so, like, just to give you an example, um, you know, the State Department, even 10 years ago, was producing 2 billion email a year. Right? Two billion email a year. Who do you think is going to look through all that email and decide what can be released to the public? Nobody. Nobody's going to be able to look through all that. You know, they've estimated that at the rate they're going now, it will take 250 years to clear the backlog of presidential libraries. Right? So, so th that's the situation we have now. We have about 2,000 people in the government whose job it is to review records to decide what can be released. Um, they... Um, disclosed not too long ago that just one intelligence agency is producing about a petabyte of data every year. And they said, if these were paper files and you line them up in file cabinets, those file cabinets would circle the equator. They said they would need 2 million archivists <laughs> working full time for a year and a half to go through it all. Okay. But you know what? They're not paper documents. They're almost certainly, you know, data sets. You know, we're talking about like remote sensing data, things like that. So it's not just a quantitative challenge. It's a qualitative challenge, right? It's not just like paper documents, like diplomatic cables that people can look at. Instead, more and more of what we're dealing with, we're talking about spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, audio, video files, et cetera. So absolutely, it's technology that has generated the exponential growth in classified information. And only technology is going to allow us to begin to get a handle on it. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I call the book the declassification engine. What I have in mind, you know, and, and is not that we're all of a sudden going to, you know, build this machine. It's going to start spitting out declassified documents. But what we have to do is we have to help those people whose job it is to review these records to prioritize. We have to give them the means by which they can begin to identify the records that require the closest scrutiny so they can begin to accelerate the release of everything else. And this is something that in the e-discovery field, the lawyers who do like large scale litigation, you know, they have to deal with millions of records. Right. They've been using algorithms to deal with this problem for years and years. It is a multi-billion dollar industry, but it has yet, it has yet to be used in any meaningful way by our federal government. Okay. Um, Tony, yeah. let me, let me, let me hand yeah. it over, <laughs> over to you. Yeah. Go ahead. So my question is, is the challenge that, you know, like, like have the government and the agencies gotten savvy to the fact that when they do release, it's going to some digital server where there could be keywords, like, do they label things like in code so that it, to make it more difficult for someone like you to actually find stuff? So uh, <laughs> let me think. Um, well, I'll give you an example where, you know, uh, I'm going to get in trouble now um, because whenever you mention <laughs> Hillary Clinton's email, you get in trouble with people. But I'll just take that as an example. The Mueller report is another one. Um, so these were born digital, right? Born digital in the sense that we all know like email is something you create on your computer. You know, it's backed up in servers, et cetera. Um, and similarly with the Mueller report, right? Um, you know, this was something that was produced through word processing software. Now, when these things were eventually released, they came to us in the form of PDFs, right? And so what they done, uh, I have a friend who joked that with the Clinton email, for example, they printed out those email, they sprinkled them with dirt, they Xeroxed them in the oldest machine they could find, they sprinkled them with more dirt, they Xerox them again, right? And then they did that like 50 more times, right? And then they finally like scanned the piece of crap at the end. And that's what they decided to load up to the State Department website to share with the rest of us. So it took my team like months and months and months of labor uh, to extract from that crap, like the original metadata, like the from, the to, the date you know, the classification level, right? When we found out that at least some of them supposedly were classified. Um, the text, right? To try to deal with the, what I was talking about earlier, the garbled text to try to make it as clean as possible. So that would be an example of how, whether they meant to or not, they made it very, very hard for people like us 
you know, to do like data science research with those records. Same with the Mueller report. I mean, this was something where, you know, they could have produced it in a way that the original text would have all been legible and readable, machine readable, as they say. But no, they didn't do that. <laughs> they just made it real hard. So so these are examples. I, I don't know that I can, you know, tell you that they intended to make it difficult, but it, God damn it, like it was hard. And this is true of a lot of like government, what they call FOIA reading rooms. So by act of Congress, every department agency, if you Google like FOIA reading room, CIA, FBI, et cetera, eventually it will lead you, you know, to some web portal where you're supposed to get access to the documents they've declassified. And they're supposed to put all the most heavily requested documents there. But I tell you, there is an enormous range, you know, in terms of what you find. And just to give a few more examples of what you're, you're talking about, Tony, like the state, the uh, CIA FOIA reading room is almost unusable. I mean, it's really terrible. It's like the worst, it's like a Soviet designed, if the Soviet Union still existed and they created a FOIA reading room, it's like, that's what it would look like. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to use. And so we've, over time, we managed to extract uh, some 11 million pages of records from the CIA database. Um, it's almost a million individual records, but it has taken so much work, you know, to get that stuff out of there and to make it usable for researchers. Um, the FBI there, it's a little bit different. Like it's actually much easier to use, but interestingly, they call it the vault, <laughs> the vault, right? This is where we keep the stuff locked up. But it's, it's tiny. It's like less than 10,000 records, right? So, so, you know, this is the kind of challenges that you face when you, you want to do what we're trying to do, which is to aggregate all the declassified documents you can get. Sometimes it's feast, sometimes it's famine. Sometimes there's lots of tasty stuff but they've thrown it all into a dumpster, right? And you've got to like kind of back some a truck up to like empty it out and try to start sorting through all the garbage. And so this is kind of what we're dealing with like when we're trying to do this kind of research. So, and I don't know if you can answer this, but someone's running for president, you know, we can use Donald Trump who is going to like, you know, fig tell us all how Kennedy was killed and he was going to declassify everything because we've been lied to. They get into the White House what does that meeting look like? Like who sits him down and goes, that's not happening. <laughs> like how, how, yeah. what's that process of like a new candidate coming in and yeah. basically being inducted into the um, yeah. uh, circle of secrecy? You know, I've not been in the room, right. Um, where they have these kind of conversations, but you know, when I look where every president um, when, when they're campaigning for office with, with one exception, They've all promised that they're going to be more accountable. They're going to have more, you know, transparency. And yet and still, like even the ones where you kind of believe it or you half believe it, at least like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, et cetera, it just doesn't happen. Right. Like even Jimmy Carter, like you seemed like, you know, coming in after Nixon and Kissinger and so on, seemed like it was going to be a brand new day. It doesn't happen. By the end of the Carter administration, they're talking about how they have to have their own classification just for the president. That you know what they called it? They said, we'll call it royal. <laughs> but it gets at this, you know, it gets at the very important underlying fact. Official secrecy is one of the few forms of sovereign power in our government. It's one of the only ways in, in which presidents can be almost completely unaccountable. And this, I think, is incredibly seductive. So I think that, you know, in those kinds of meetings, I think it's when the seduction begins. Right. So I don't know that Trump had to be seduced because he's loved secrecy all his life. Right. He's right. always been paying people off to keep them quiet, all the rest of it. So, you know, with Trump, you know, whatever he said about releasing all of the Kennedy records or whatever, he'd say whatever he had to in any given sure. moment or anything that pops into his head. Some of these other presidents, I take it a little more seriously. But what they all have in common is that ultimately they all become really invested in this idea, you know, that they are the, the guardians of national security. And if they tried to dismantle this, this vast apparatus, you know, then the entire country would be in danger. Um, and so, you know, time and again, you know, I, I find that soon enough, uh, whether they intended to originally or not, they all of them eventually become spokesmen. And what they typically say is that, well, you know, we have to balance, right? We have to balance, you know, national security on the one hand with the need to be like democratic and accountable on the other. But then, you know, it's like what Joe Biden sometimes says. He says, you know, if you really want to know what people value, look at their budget. What do they spend their money on? 
right? And so time and again, you know, we find that they shortchange declassification. They, they strip money from the National Archives. And there's, there's never enough money for the Pentagon or the intelligence community, right? So now, for example, we, we spend less than $400 million for the National Archive. That's less money than the Pentagon spends on military bans, right? So, so you know what they care about, and it's not, it's not accountability, okay? It's absolutely not. The entire federal government, they spent about $100 million on declassification. The last time they came up with a guesstimate, they were spending over $18 million on secrecy. Right. So there is no balance. And anybody who tells you otherwise is just lying to you. So I guess really maybe what's happened or it's always been this way is the more we are meddling around the world, let's call it the business of the United States, really what is classified, because at some point we might need to go do something in Africa. So this piece of information today is classified because who knows what we're going to do 20 years from now. And I'm assuming that's why everything is classified, because we have our hands in so much. It's not necessarily national security, like with the MLK assassination or whatever, where it could have caused actual uproar. This is more like at some point, you know, 40 years from now, we might do something. So let's just classify it. Is that kind of what's happening and why everything's so secretive? Well, you know, here's where I'm going to qualify things a bit, you know, so absolutely the big story here, the big picture is like overclassification, like far too much information. Estimates vary from like between 50 and 95%. These are people inside government who would tell you, you know, that 50 to 95% of what's classified doesn't actually need to be. So that is the big story here and the most important part of it. But, you know, I will say that when you analyze, as we have, when you finally do like manage to, you know, get all these documents into data sets and start crunching numbers and using data mining tools, what you find is that there are patterns, right, that uh, are persistent over time and somewhat predictable, you know, as, as to, you know, about 90% predictable, if I had to pick a number. Um, you know, when we do experiments and we try to predict, if you didn't know the classification of this or that diplomatic cable, you know, does the algorithm, if you give it enough information, can it predict the classification level? It can, about 90% of the time, right? So what that tells you is it's not random, right? It's, and it's not everything either. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at it, what I actually found, you mentioned, Tony, like things like, you know, international trade, investment, and so on. Those kinds of topics tend not to be classified very highly. Hmm. Um, and in a way, I found that uh, surprising. Like I have a chapter about this. Um, where it's about, you know, the business of America, right? And I asked the question, like, is it really the case that, uh, you know, a lot of what we try to explain in American foreign policy is ultimately comes down to capitalism? Um, and, you know, I give a, a pretty qualified and nuanced answer. Um, in the end, you know, I think absolutely, you know, a lot of what we see, most of what they spend their time on, and this too is something you can now measure, like diplomats more than anything else, they spend their time on, on things like trade promotion, negotiation of international agreements, foreign direct investment. That is like what they do, like day to day. That is far and away the most common kind of activity of American officials abroad is promoting American businesses and ne negotiating international trade. But they don't tend to cover it up. They're very open about it, you know. And so in a way, it's like hiding in plain sight. And one reason is that I would argue that by and large, they think this is popular. They think this is what the American people want them to be doing. Um, and so, you know, th this is a book where I'm not going to confirm every conspiracy theory. And some of these things, I think, are, are really not very conspiratorial. Like their presidents are pretty open about the idea that they're out there promoting capitalism, even if they don't necessarily use the term capitalism. Um, now, the things that they do cover up, uh, they're, they're legion. Right. I mean, there are many, many things. And this is why ultimately there are 10 chapters in this book, because there are a lot of secrets that they do want to conceal. Um, but typically it's, it's not about the business of America. Somehow they seem to be proud of that. Man, um, one of the things that I thought and maybe we can kind of end on this uh, is that. Even though that this whole system is supposedly created for national security, right? And and obviously there can be very good, and you offer many sort of plausible arguments about the yeah stuff. Some stuff has to be secret, right? Like it's not like you're you're not arguing for just sort of willy nilly exposure of everything, but rather a much more sort of deliberate uh, understanding of what needs to be kept. But you know, in in terms of like 
terrifying stuff that comes up in the book. Um, the nuclear codes, like the original nuclear codes that were just all zeros for <laughs> like what? <laughs> like the people who like the, the ultimate thing, the people who get to push the button, they're like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to, well, let's come up with like seven zeros. Cause it's easy to remember. Right. Like how, this is like, unbe- it's unbelievable to me that this happened um, and that they then had to go back and like fix it, right? And like, okay, and then we're going to fix it. But it's a byproduct also of how much the security state is vying for power with the civilian um, aspects of the government, right? Um, and and that this sort of horse race between, you know, we're the guys with the gun. We got. We know how to shoot the guns, right? What do you guys know? So why should you have any access to this kind of stuff? And this goes all the way to the present with like Colin Powell and stuff like that. But but um, I I don't know. Like how one thing that I still have questions about is that how did they legitimize such idiocy, right? <laughs> yeah. So you know the case you're you're describing is one where John F. Kennedy when he became president was frightened at the uh, insecurity of American nuclear weapons and the concern that, you know, they could be lost or stolen um, or used, you know, by some local commander uh, with, without uh, authorization. So, yeah, he set up the system, or he thought he did, with Robert McNamara, where they were going to have to input codes, at least, you know, for the use of intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, and, and American um, uh, bombers. Um but, you know, what happens, right? Uh, these orders uh, have to be interpreted and, and eventually they, they end up getting countermanded um, to the point where like McNamara himself was shocked <laughs> when he found out about it many years later. And so, you know, to answer the question, like, how does this happen? In this case, this is a, a chapter I write uh, called The Dirty Secret of Civil Military Relations. And for me, like the dirty secret is that uh, there is this ongoing struggle you know, between the military and their nominal civilian superiors. Uh, and for much of the history that I write about, we're talking now about the 1950s and 60s and 70s, it was a two-front war. You know, there was a struggle over uh, the control of, uh, uh, well, the decision whether the U.S. would go to war, right? Um, and then there was the, the fight over appropriations, and so I describe, you know, how Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon, like they were waging this ongoing struggle, you know, trying to maintain what's supposed to be the constitutional power of the president with Congress, right, to declare war, right, and, and, and be the commander in chief. And so, you know, time and again, we, there were generals and admirals who thought they were incompetent, unqualified, not just the president, but the people the president appointed, and that they knew better, right, as to how to protect America's national security. In this case, they thought, you know, if you make those weapons so secure that they're never used by accident, then we're not going to be able to use them when we really need to, right? And they thought the most important thing was to to get off the first shots, right, in the case of a nuclear war, and the U.S. had to get in the first blows, and anything that slowed them down, you know, was a, was a threat to the Amer- America's ability to, uh, to prevail, uh, to the extent anybody can, in a nuclear conflict. Um, and so th- this has been the case many times and you can see it right down, you know, even the eighties and nineties, like, you know, even when it came to things like the so-called don't ask, don't tell policy, you can now read the, uh, uh, conversations that took place in the white house, uh, between Bill Clinton, Al Gore and the joint chiefs of staff. It's just shocking, right? This, the way in which, um, senior military leaders were openly defiant, you know, of the president. And I won't even tell you that the horrible things that they said about about gay and lesbian people. Um, so, you know, this is an ongoing struggle. And it's one I, I think it's not, you know, I say it's not so dramatic as anything like a military coup. There, there are some people who seem to be hoping that we'll have a military coup if ever Donald Trump becomes president again. Um, I think instead what we've seen is a slow erosion, you know, in civilian uh, authority over, over the military. To the point where too many of us, I think, now, you know, hope that if we ever had a president like Donald Trump again, that they would protect us. That, to me, is the most dangerous thing of all, right? That we've gotten to the point now where we think we might need the military to, to, to preserve the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember that um, in Defense One around the 2020 election, um, retired Lieutenant Colonel John Noggle um, put out 
a statement, which he got a lot of flack for, which was saying that the military should step in should Donald Trump, you know, say no, you know, and this, you know, that's, I think that's very much, very much there. And what I did not realize is that there is a sort of, uh, a long sort of simmering um, antagonism um, between these two sort of parties that are supposed to be sort of working in the public's interest. Um, one last question. I don't know if you can answer it though. Um, was there anything in this book that, you know, as you're writing it, you came across something and you couldn't put it in because the lawyers were like, Nope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. Anything, anything like, and, and again, you don't, if you can't, if you can't answer, you can neither confirm nor deny. I, I understand that, but I'm just curious. You know, it wasn't about the, like, like there is research that continues to make people nervous where like, for example, if we went about like trying to uncover redacted text, um, you know, pe people get nervous about that kind of thing. Um, you know, so we ended up not, you know, trying to uncover redacted text, but the real reason is that we just don't have enough data yet. Mm -hmm. um, like you need many, many examples where you have the redacted version of something and then the unredacted version. That's what you call your training data, right? That would allow you to make reasonable predictions. Um, so we ended up not doing some of the kind of research that got people really, really nervous. Um, but, you know, I do think that uh, we're going to be doing that kind of research when we do have enough data uh, to do it. We're only dealing with declassified documents and doing that kind of research, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that people shouldn't be allowed. Um, and, you know, so that that would be an example of something that that, you know, people warned us about. But, you know, as it turned out, it wasn't really practical. But I think with with more tech, more data. Right. And with the continuing advances in, in machine learning, uh, like there are techniques like word embeddings now, for example, um, that are quite promising. Like this is uh, at least in part, this is the technology behind things like chat GPT. Um, it's one of the reasons why I can generate text is it's like making predictions as to which word will follow, follow the last one. So things like that could be applied to the redaction problem. Um, so I think that's going to be possible going forward. Um, but, you know, sometimes like the things that lawyers dream up, the nightmares that they have, like are just not not practical. Right. And realistic. Um, but things like that could be possible going forward. OK. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, um, Matt Conley's book, Declassification Engine, um, you got to read it. It's uh, it'll keep you up at night. Um, but as I mentioned before, it's a great read. And we come out of it realizing um, we don't know a lot. <laughs> I think that's one of, one of the takeaways is that what we think we know uh, is really different from what is perhaps possible because we don't have access. So um, and you know, in a supposedly open democratic society uh, with the army and the state supposed to be representing us and being us effectively, um, you know, the national heritage matters and access to it matters. So yeah, thank you so much for the book and thanks for coming yeah. on. Thank, thank you. you, Ahmed. Thank you, Tony. I really enjoyed it. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Ahmed Prakash. Uh, Tunes by G. Baderoy, theme song by Alex Tepper, um, and go to our website, check out um, some past episodes, and we will be uploading um, Matt's book uh, so you can see it there. But highly recommend it. Awesome. We'll see you next time.